Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Podcast with lots of home improvement information. Even if that's not your bag, all of the episodes are archived online. So if the mood strikes you or if the need motivates you, you can search your project. And yes, there is a Fix It 101 podcast for that. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, May 31st. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier. And this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a massive twist in a sleepy judicial race. Then we talk with reporter Rosemary Westwood about her new podcast on abortion rights in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The U.S. Supreme Court says Doug Evans used racist tactics to put a man on death row four times. But that finding didn't cost Evans, who's a prosecutor in North Mississippi, his job. And it hasn't deterred him from now asking for your vote for a circuit court judgeship. Caleb Bedelon is a reporter at the Tupelo-based Daily Journal. He tells Mississippi Edition producer Rob Blaine the story goes back decades. In 1996, uh, there was a murder of four people in uh, Winona, Mississippi. Curtis Flowers was ultimately charged by Doug Evans and prosecuted for the murder of those individuals. Ultimately, uh, Curtis Flowers was tried six times by Evans for these murders. Uh, The first trial was in 1997, and the uh, last trial was in 2010. Uh, There were so many trials on what was essentially the same charges because uh, there were four convictions that were variously overturned by higher courts and then two mistrials. The last trial, the 2010 trial, did result in convictions, and uh, that was the case that was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court on the basis uh, that Doug Evans had unconstitutionally uh, used his ability to strike uh, juror candidates from the jury pool by unconstitutionally targeting uh, black juror candidates. And several of uh, the prior convictions had also been set aside by state courts on that basis as well. And then uh, following that Supreme Court ruling, which came in 2019, Evans ultimately 
uh, recused himself from any further involvement in the case as a prosecutor, and then the attorney general's office uh, ultimately decided not to prosecute Curtis Flowers a seventh time, and so he is he is a free man today. And uh, obviously, you know, nationally, this case drew. Uh, significant attention because of the podcast in the dark by American public media. And we should say, I mean, Curtis Flowers is a black man. That is correct. Yes. Curtis Flowers is a black man. Uh, Doug Evans is white and uh, several of the jury pools that were ultimately seated uh, were all white. So that is, you know, the, the significant issue at contention across all of these trials uh, and was uh, relied on heavily by the Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court was just looking at the uh, statistics across all of the trials of which jurors, racially speaking, Evans struck and which he uh, seated. And then, of course, the issue at the last trial was uh, – highly disparate questioning of the potential juror candidates. So black juror candidates were questioned at a much higher, uh, they, they were, more questions were posed to them than white candidates. So that, that was an issue that Justice Brett Kavanaugh raised in his opinion for the U.S. Supreme Court majority. And currently, Mr. Flowers is suing Mr. Evans for what Mr. Flowers says was sort of prosecutorial misconduct. That's right. That's right. So following the you know termination of any criminal prosecution against him, uh, Curtis Flowers has now uh, sued Doug Evans for his handling of the case. Um, including not just the prosecutions, which his lawsuit describes as malicious, but his handling of the investigation uh, preceding, you know, the actual decision to prosecute Mr. Flowers. The contention is, you know, he overlooked multiple uh, lines of evidence that might have led elsewhere than Mr. Flowers. Uh, Mr. Evans, of course, disputes all of this and has asked for the uh, lawsuit brought by um, uh, Mr. Flowers to be dismissed. So Mr. Evans now wants to be a circuit court judge in Mississippi, Fifth Circuit uh, court judge specifically. How did that post become available? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's an elected post, so I suppose it's always technically available. But uh, why is this one sort of such a hotly contested race? Right. So this year, of course, in Mississippi is judicial elections. Uh, these are a nonpartisan election cycle. And so in November, voters in Mississippi will be electing circuit court judges, chancery court judges, and county court judges in this counties that have a county court. Not every county does. So the qualifying period opened at the beginning of uh, this year. The qualifying period closed, and the incumbent for this seat, judicial post two in the Fifth Circuit Court District. So the incumbent qualified for re-election. His name was George Mitchell, Jr., and he was unopposed for re-election. 
uh, many, many of our incumbent circuit court judges are not opposed. So he was set for another term. Unfortunately, uh, Judge Mitchell uh, passed away and died on uh, April the 19th, I believe. So there were, since he was the only candidate in the race, there were no candidates left running for that post. So as empowered by state law, the governor reopened the qualifying period. Have you covered judicial elections before? I can tell you that this is something that I'm personally not very knowledgeable about. How do they work? What does a campaign look like? How many people show up to vote? Right. So since judicial elections happen, you know, kind of without other major races on the ballot, you know, there are we're not electing a governor. We're not electing a president. We do have congressional races on the ballot, but those also tend to in off years, not be a high a high profile. So yeah, turnout in judicial races tends to be low. Uh, these are, of course, as I said, nonpartisan races. So there is not a primary at some point prior to November. Uh, the races tend to be, you know, pretty low key. There's not really any issues the candidates can take a stance on. They're, they can't promise to rule a certain way in certain races. There are also, uh, you know, codes of judicial ethics that restrict the things they can say or do the way, or the ways they can campaign. Uh, now, you can get into issues where the candidates uh, accuse each other of violating the judicial uh, ethics canons for uh, races, and that sometimes can get contentious. But, uh, no, these tend to be pretty under-the-radar affairs. Uh, this, this race may get an unusual amount of attention for a judicial race in Mississippi. Yeah, I was going to say, do you have any sort of a forecast in terms of how this extraordinary candidate, this extraordinary circumstance could affect what you would describe as otherwise a pretty pedestrian democratic process? Obviously, the race will get more coverage than probably any other judicial race in the state uh, in terms of the fact that, I mean, most of these races are only, you know, covered by whatever, if there's a local weekly newspaper or some other kind of news outlet. I mean, you'll have statewide media uh, maybe beyond paying attention to the outcome of the race. Uh, so, I mean, that could be an issue. Whether that will drive up turnout, I mean, I honestly, this is such an unusual situation for a judicial race. It's just really hard to say. Caleb Bedillion is with the Daily Journal. Coming up, we talk with reporter Rosemary Westwood about her new podcast on abortion rights in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. The first part of the new podcast, Band, the Mississippi Case to End Roe v. Wade, is out today from WWNO in New Orleans and PRX. The show explores the battle over Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban within the legal system and the public square. Here's a clip from the first episode. By 2018, Mississippi had a law requiring women seeking abortions receive an ultrasound. And a question. Want to hear the fetal heartbeat? 
Another law mandates a 24-hour waiting period between first coming into a clinic and being able to get an abortion. Telemedicine for either visit is banned. These laws worked. Mississippi has a small population, but the state has had several abortion clinics over the years. Now, all but one of Mississippi's abortion clinics are gone. It's harder to get an abortion here than in almost any other state. Rosemary Westwood, who is WWNO's health reporter, hosts the podcast. She speaks with MPB's Rob Lane. These abortion bans that we've been talking about in the last year or two are new. For for a long time, what states were trying to do was make it harder to get abortions, make it harder for abortion providers to operate in their states. And that has been successful. Like clinics have been dwindling across the country and especially in the South. And I think, you know, when I looked at, started to look at this 15-week ban, one of the things that really struck me was, you know, Mississippi was in a place in 2018 where, as Terry Herring, one of the anti-abortion activists we feature, said they had about everything on the books they could have on the books. You know, the state had been doing its job in terms of, you know, those who believe anti-abortion laws need to be passed. And the 15-week ban was a bit of a long shot, you know, sort of a shot in the dark, especially because at that point, you know, it wasn't clear that the Supreme Court was going to support and, and accept a ban like this. What makes Mississippi such a compelling and such an important part of this story? When I was looking at what we wanted to do about this case, when the court took the case um, and we knew this was going to be a major pivot point for abortion rights, I really wanted to feature and focus on the people on the ground in Mississippi. I think the state is at the front line of passing a lot of anti-abortion laws. It's it's sort of, you know, a Petri dish, I've heard some people say, for what laws might stick or not. So there aren't many laws out there that exist around abortion, trying to restrict abortion, that Mississippi doesn't have, you know. And the other side of that is that for someone trying to access an abortion, it's pretty much harder in Mississippi than anywhere else. I mean, when you look at what someone might be facing from their own personal standpoint in terms of like having a job they can take time off of or having kids they can get care for or having the resources, the capacity to travel. I mean, a lot of the factors of just how you live your life, the this, this sort of social factors in, in your life, socioeconomic factors, those make it harder for, for women in Mississippi than almost anywhere else. And if abortions are banned, there's going to be a much harder hurdle for women in the South than almost anywhere else in terms of traveling somewhere else to get an abortion. So it's sort of the perfect microcosm of both sides of that, really, of a place where the anti-abortion movement has been really successful and a place where women, if abortions are banned, are going to be impacted almost more than anywhere else in the country. Why has the anti-abortion movement been so successful in Mississippi? Such a good question. I think one of the things that is really important in the podcast is we spend time talking to Lori Bertram Roberts and, you know, people who have been paying attention to abortion battles in Mississippi will know that name. She's a prominent abortion rights activist, both in Mississippi and in Alabama. And, you know, she talks about two sides of that. One side is absolutely, 
you know, an organized anti-abortion movement, which has a huge amount of support from religious organizations in the country. And you cannot underestimate, I think, the impact of that. So the more religious, the more conservatively Christian a state is, the more power that I think there is for the anti-abortion movement there to tie into those religious communities, which are, you know, full of people, I think, that take on the activism of the anti-abortion movement from that religious standpoint. But the other thing that Lori says is that abortion rights activists, abortion rights groups, especially from the national level, have not been playing the best game, to quote Lori, have not been working on grassroots abortion rights support in places like the South, have not been paying enough attention to the dwindling access to abortion, have not been framing abortion around abortion instead of this idea of being pro-choice, you know, really talking about abortion itself. Why is that part of reproductive health care? How does that factor into other things like choices you might want to make around your family? You know, how is abortion actually part of being someone who grows a family? And those are complex ideas, but they're things that are really embedded in women's experiences when they come to a clinic. And Lori says, you know, everyone's not an atheist feminist. Like, people have feelings about abortion. This should have been addressed. We should have been talking about this. And instead, she feels like Mississippi and the South have been abandoned by the national movements. And the result of that is states that sort of, aside from filing lawsuits whenever a law is passed, there's not a lot of resistance to the anti-abortion movement in a state like Mississippi. I think that Lori would say she thinks that more people support abortion than you'd think in Mississippi. But has that really translated into a movement? And the answer is no. So it certainly sounds like you had some interesting conversations with folks on the pro-abortion right side of the issue. How about the other side? Yeah, we spend a lot of time in the podcast with Terry Herring, who is a longtime anti-abortion activist. One of the other activists we talked to calls her the godmother of Mississippi's pro-life movement. And she actually was involved in passing the first anti-abortion law that Mississippi passed post-Roe, which was in the 80s. And it had to do with restricting abortions for minors and requiring minors to get parental consent. And I wanted to spend a lot of time with Terry, both both to understand sort of where her activism comes. You know, I try to show people what motivates her, how she came to this movement, why she thinks this is so important that she's really dedicated a huge amount of her life to this issue. And the other side of that is also to get her to explain to people how she sees the impacts of abortion bans and, you know, what she thinks, you know, should and shouldn't be allowed, what exceptions there might be that she would support or not support. So you can kind of understand, I think, not just what is the sort of emotional maybe motivator for for a lot of people, but also like what her vision for the future is, because that's sort of the precipice we're at right now. You know, we know what it's like when abortions are accessible. We don't really know what it's like because Roe was so many years ago and things have changed in a lot of ways. And so it's really important, I think, to hear from people like Terry, you know, what they think the future should be and how they think Mississippi should help what will be thousands more women who stay pregnant and give birth every year if abortions are banned. So I imagine you're working on this podcast, you're several months in at this point, and you turn on the news one night, as so many Americans did, and discover that a leak of a majority draft opinion in this case has been released to Politico. What goes through your mind? I was surprised. I texted Terry that night. I 
I talked to an abortion clinic administrator I know to find out what they thought. And they were also in this moment of kind of like thinking this was going to happen. The writing was pretty much on the wall after the Supreme Court oral arguments in December. But it still hit people, you know, with a bit of shock, I think, maybe because Roe had seemed impossible to overturn for so many years. And then then I was like, what are we going to do about the podcast? But in one sense, not a lot changed. I mean, this was a story that we set out to tell, understanding that this was the likely outcome. And the thing is, we thought we would be putting this out there before the court's decision came down as kind of like a trial balloon, you know, like tuning people in to what's to come. And then once it came, they could go back and listen if they, they hadn't to understand how we got here. And so we had to shift some of the writing around in the story because that's not our job anymore. We're not warning anybody, you know, if that's the phrase you want to use or tuning anybody in to what's likely to come now. Now we really are squarely trying to show you how we got here. And I, I think this intimate story of Mississippi's 15-week ban is sort of universal in that sense. Like, you, we know how we got here from this one law, but we also know how we got here in a bigger sense as a country by telling this story. Can you point to one particular story that you've highlighted in your work here that maybe hasn't been noticed or recognized in the past? I would say that I think one of the hardest things to do, I think in any kind of reporting, but definitely in abortion reporting, is to make the stories of women the focus. And that was a challenge in this podcast as well. But we do tell the story of one woman who's gone to Jackson Women's Health Organization in Jackson to get an abortion. And I think her story is really interesting because she's someone who isn't sure what she's going to do. Most women, when they come to an abortion clinic, have already made up their minds, but she's she's not sure. And so you're kind of able to see, you know, what does it feel like to be someone who's not sure what they're going to do and wants to make this decision? What are the factors driving her? How can you relate to that experience? And the other thing is that when you look at what abortion bans will do, they won't just ban abortions for people who someone might think shouldn't be able to get one. They, they ban them for, you know, most people. And a lot of abortion bans these days do not have exceptions for rape. So we, we take a slight sort of detour in one of the episodes to tell the story of a 12-year-old girl I met at an abortion clinic in New Orleans who was there because she had been raped and she was going to get an abortion. And I, I just want to highlight that story because these examples, people, people like this girl, I call her Gloria, they will also not be able to get abortions. It's likely that rape will not be an exception that's included in laws going forward if Roe is overturned in many states. So I, I think, again, like it's so, it's so easy in a way to know what the talking points are for things, but how can you actually understand other people's lives? And I, I think the question that 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 raises is in the whole podcast really raises is who should get to decide what happens for these women. I think that's something people can sort of sit with as they listen to the podcast. Rosemary Westwood hosts the new podcast band, the Mississippi case to in Roe v. Wade. You can listen now for free on any podcast platform. 
This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Money Talks. At 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Michael Guidry, in for Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.